Well, before we open God's Word this morning, I want to invite a very special group of people. Katie, you already know what I'm going to do, and I haven't even asked you up here yet. Will you come on up? And the rest of the team. (laughs) You just kind of gave me that look like, wow, that's amazing. Come on up. This is a really, really special group of, of young people. I should add, my daughter was also on the team, but she went home sick this morning. So, what'd you guys do to her? <laughs> Listen, I, I, I just wanted to uh, not only encourage the church family, but um, thank um, this whole crew of young people. There, there is nothing that excites me more. Oh, we've got more coming. It is a really exciting thing for a pastor to get an email like this from the director of a prominent Christian camp. Let me read it to you. This is from uh, Jack Moyer, and many of you know him. Once again, the team from Christ Fellowship was outstanding. They are about to have the closing ceremony with the day campers and their parents. Please give your church my public thanks for their ministry this week. And so I wanted to pass that along to you. Um, I need to tell the young people, uh, you don't always get an email like that. Uh, Sometimes you get other emails. Moms and dads know what I'm talking about, and it leads to other kinds of discussions uh, behind closed doors. But, you know, we, we have so much confidence in this, in this group of young people, and so I, I personally, as your pastor, want to thank you for your faithfulness, for your obedience to Jesus, for your willingness to be sent um, to Camp Gilead and do the work of the ministry. It wasn't all people ministry either. They did some, would it be safe to, Kirk, to call it grunt work, sure. they did hard work with. <laughs> sure, <laughs> they did hard work with with their hands, manual labor, and so uh, once again, thank you so much. Let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> One more thing, because this is kind of like a visual object lesson. How do we normally conclude a church service? What's the last thing I say? Anyone? You can yell it out. Who said that? You win the prize. You're now dismissed. We're going to start something different at Christ Fellowship. Instead of saying you're now dismissed, that's a little anticlimactic, don't you think? I'm going to do my best to remember to say, now you are sent. A little less anti, more anticlimactic, right? Because we are sent into all the world here in Whatcom County. And to the nations. And so that's what you all did uh, over the last week. You were sent. You obeyed. And how many of you had just a blast? Obeying Jesus is fun. Yeah. So thank you so much. Let's have a word of prayer for these young people. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for these young men and women who uh, obeyed the call to to serve you in a very practical and tangible way. Thank Thank you so much for the influence that they had on many young people on children, uh, all for the glory of God. We pray that you continue to fan the flame uh, with these students. We ask that uh, they too would continue to be sent into all the world to obey uh, the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would receive pleasure and joy and delight in doing just that. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 11. 
This morning we will be reading from John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38. And out of respect for the authority of God's word, I want to ask that you would stand with me. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have always heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now here in John chapter 11, Jesus Christ moves closer to the cross where he would die for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And before he carries a cross, however, to Golgotha, he must stand even closer to the shadow of death, the death of his good friend, Lazarus. Calvin says something very interesting at this point. He says that Christ does not approach the sepulcher or the tomb as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that he groans, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. Once again, as we come to this passage... In verse 38, we see that Jesus is deeply moved. He's deeply moved as he comes to the foot of the tomb. And you will recall, if you will review with me briefly from last week, that there were three emotions that Jesus experienced in a very vivid way in verses 33 to 35. We learned last week that he, as he learned about the death of of his friend Lazarus, that he was deeply moved in his spirit. That's the same word construction that we find in verse 38. We also see that he was greatly troubled. And then the culmination of these emotions, we find the shortest verse in the Bible, that Jesus wept. Today we will see that Jesus stands even closer to the shadow of death as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus. And the title of the message this morning is A Heavenly Fixation. I want to make an argument today. I want to argue that even though we find Jesus wrestling with this deep emotion, you remember, as we have emphasized in many sermons in, in the past, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We don't emphasize his deity over his humanity. We don't emphasize his humanity over his deity. The scripture is clear. The confessions are clear. The church fathers are clear. Jesus is fully God and man. 
And so the Lord Jesus Christ, even though we find deep emotion erupting from the heart of the God-man Jesus as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, he held to a, what I like to call a heavenly vision. He held to a heavenly vision. I want to give you the truth point up front this morning. And the truth point is simply this. The heavenly vision is spelled out as follows. Jesus' heavenly fixation is fixed squarely on the glory of Almighty God. You ask, what was it that fueled the resolve of Jesus? What was it that got Jesus motivated? What excited Jesus? What was running through his mind as he, as he moved closer to the tomb of his friend? What was running through his mind when he got closer to the cross that he would be crucified upon? Jesus' heavenly fixation, you see, is set squarely on the glory of God. Now, while Jesus was intensely fixated on the glory of God, while he had his mind and his affections set in a heavenly direction, that is, in a vertical direction, the people around him, you'll remember, are largely oriented to the horizontal. While Jesus is fixated in a vertical direction, the people around him are largely preoccupied with horizontal pursuits. While Jesus sets his sights on the purposes of Almighty God, his Father, the people around him were consumed with the here and now. Martha is a great example And you'll recall last week that we made numerous positive observations about both Martha's faith and Mary's faith. But we also see that Martha and Mary had, like you and I, a faith that is oftentimes frail. A faith that is oftentimes weak. A faith that sometimes struggles. And so Martha is a great example of someone who has a faith that is teeter-tottering from the vertical to the horizontal. Where she focuses on the glory of God, but then she's back to the horizontal. She's focusing on the glory of God, and then she's back to the here and now. Case in point, Jesus finally comes to the point where he's at the foot of the tomb. And he says, I should say, he utters a command to Martha. He says, take away the stone. Now, think about this. That's pretty simple, right? Take away the stone. Martha becomes like every child I have ever met and every child you have ever met where they have an objection. It's a, yeah, but Jesus simply said, take away the stone. And I find her lack of faith, her horizontal pursuit, not only fascinating, but even just a, just a smidgen bit amusing. She says, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Martha was a practical woman. I do not preach out of the King James, Although I grew up with the King James as a young man, as a young boy, I should say, and memorized hundreds of verses in the King James. However, I love the King James at this point. 
The King James is even more vivid than the English Standard Version. Jesus says, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) That is classic. He stinketh. For he has been dead for four days. And so we see that Martha is, is fixated at this point, not on the glory of God. Rather, she is fixated on the stench of death instead of the sovereign Lord who stood inches before her. The sovereign Lord who has the power to vanquish death. Lord, he stinketh. And the one who would vanquish death stands before her. So once again, as we learned last week, we find that Martha's faith is frail. It is a faith that needs to be nurtured. It is a faith that needs to be strengthened. It is a faith that needs to be sustained. It is a faith that needs to grow. Martha's faith needs to be educated By the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask this morning. Can you can you relate to Martha's struggling faith? Can you relate to having a faith that is weak and even flabby at times? Can you relate to ever questioning the plan of Jesus? In a few weeks, a a good friend of mine, my friends Mark and Mary will be here. They are kingdom workers. I'll put it this way since we're recording this. They are kingdom workers in a faraway place. They minister in a country where it is illegal to be a missionary. And that's why we refer to them as kingdom workers. I remember the day when my friend Mark came to me and said, I think Jesus wants my wife and I to move to a faraway place. Me, Jesus? Do do you have the right you have the right number? weren't weren't you weren't you looking uh, weren't you looking for Kirk and Kyle? <laughs> Randy Winter, weren't you looking for Randy? <laughs> Jesus, you got the wrong number. My fra- my faith becomes frail. My faith becomes weak. Do you ever come to the point where you question the wisdom of Jesus, where you doubt Jesus, where your faith grows shaky? As you approach the smell of death. This morning I want to challenge you to take spiritual inventory. I want to ask what is it that you are fixated upon? What is it that you are fixated upon? What is it that consumes your thoughts? And one of the ways to gauge where you stand in this spiritual inventory is what have you been thinking about? For the last four minutes, were you thinking about the horrible 12th inning last night in the Mariners game? Were you thinking about what you will have later for lunch? Are you thinking about your debt? Are you thinking about a job that you're thinking of applying for? Are you thinking about that relationship that is so very special to you? And none of these things as an end in themselves are wrong. However, the question this morning is, what exactly is it that you are fixated upon? Is it toys or technology? Is it the future 
Is it your family? Is it retirement? Is it your portfolio? What is it that you find yourself thinking about and coming to the point of actually worshiping or idolizing? And how might Jesus' perspective here in this narrative uh, help your perspective? How might Jesus' perspective renovate or transform your attitude? Because I think if we're honest, we all struggle, just like Martha. Martha was quite a woman, was she not? But she, like you and I, struggle on the horizontal. And so how might Jesus' perspective fuel your resolve to be a Christian whose eyes are set and fixed in the vertical direction on God in all his glory? Here's the critical question I want to focus on for the next few minutes. And that is, how is Jesus' heavenly fixation set square on the glory of God. And while we have observed that Martha struggled in the realm of the horizontal, Jesus Christ is the one who knew all things and knows all things. He knew exactly what she was struggling with, did he not? And here in this passage, Jesus stops Martha dead in her tracks. When she says, to quote the King James, but Lord, it stinketh. As if to say, don't remove the stone, it's bad enough already. Jesus stops her dead in his tracks in verse 40. Look at it with me. He said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now you recall when Martha, when Martha and Mary sent the messenger up north to tell Jesus about the illness of Lazarus. This was before he died. Jesus heard it. And in chapter 11, verse 4, he said this. He said to the messenger, and there is no doubt that this messenger ran back as fast as he could to Bethany, to the village of Lazarus, to tell Mary and Martha what Jesus had said. And he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for what? The glory of of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then last week we saw in verses 25 and 26, Jesus made the at least day-long journey to the village of Bethany, and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he lives, live, rather, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus said, once again, in John 11, verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And I want to encourage you to read between the lines in Scripture because something very, very interesting happens in between verse 40 and verse 41. Let me personalize this. If I say to Jesus... The Son of Man, the Creator of all things, the Sovereign Lord of the universe. But Lord, He stinketh. He's been dead for four days. I can tell you exactly what I would feel right when I got to the end of that sentence. I would feel horribly guilty. 
I would feel as if I had committed a, a sin of unbelief because I just doubted the creator and the sustainer of all things. So, so here is the interesting thing that happens. When Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 41. Pay very careful attention to her response. John merely reports, so they took away the stone. That blows me away. There is no rebuttal. There is no debate. They take away the stone. And I believe now with the the stone that has been rolled away from the tomb of this man who was undoubtedly, undoubtedly in a condition where he stunk. Martha was right. Now, with the stone rolled away, we are in a position to see exactly how Jesus fixated his attention on the glory of God. And the fact that he fixates his attention on the glory of God is indisputable. And as as you might guess, is in sharp and vivid contrast to the horizontal struggling faith of Martha. And so how does he fixate his attention on the glory of God? I want to show you three ways that he does it. The first is found in verse 41. Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. This is significant. The first way that we see Jesus is fixated on the glory of God is that his thankful heart glorifies God. Even as he stands in the shadow of death, and I want you to to feel and sense and taste the weightiness of this. His friend is dead. My friend, who I have referred to several times over the last few weeks, died, I believe, about three weeks ago now. His service was yesterday. And just because it's been three weeks ago since my friend Don died does not mean that the pain has gone for me or his family or his friends or his church family. It still lingers. And we can all relate to this, right? Most of us, if not all of us, have a a loved one or a friend who died, whether it was weeks or months or years ago. And you can still feel the sting. You can still feel the weightiness of it. And so here is Jesus, who is, remember, fully God and fully man, standing outside of this smelly tomb. And what does he do? Verse 41 tells us that he thanks God. The Greek word translated thanks means to joyfully give thanks. It's not a mere, thank you mom for the cookie. It's, thank you for the cookie. I love cookies. That's the kind of thanksgiving that Jesus offers as he stands in the shadow of death. He thanks the Father for hearing his prayer. The Apostle Paul models this posture that Jesus uh, also models for us in Philippians 4. Paul says it this way, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now listen, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so here, as Jesus is in turmoil, as he is disturbed, we've seen that two times in this chapter. We've learned that he has wept and may likely still have have tears running down his cheeks. Jesus refuses the horizontal gaze. You see this. He refuses the horizontal gaze. Instead, he lifts his eyes to his Father and he thanks God for hearing his prayer. That is the heart of Jesus. And I want to do something that will take a a few moments and, and, and take an inside look at the heart of Jesus as the one who... I think we can all agree is such a great example for you and I who struggle with a propensity to complain. What do we complain about? We complain about, especially in Whatcom County, we complain about the weather. Not this summer, (laughs) but we complain about the weather. We complain about the economy. We complain about our politicians. We complain about how little money we make. We complain about our children. We complain, complain, complain. But notice the example of Jesus here. That's what I like to call an insider's look at thankful faith. Number one, I want you to see that thanksgiving is a habit that needs to be cultivated. Thanksgiving is a habit that needs to be cultivated. Remember this principle. Thanksgiving is never automatic. Thanksgiving is never automatic. It is a habit that needs to be nurtured day by day. And so we cultivate the habit of thanksgiving for the good gifts that God has given us. We cultivate thanksgiving for our families. We cultivate thanksgiving for the weather, even in Whatcom County from October to the end of April. We Thank God for the rain that makes this the most beautiful place in all of America. We cultivate thanksgiving for our salvation. You see, there are a million things to be thankful for. Yet this attitude of gratitude, as I like to call it, is a habit that needs to be cultivated. Mom and dad, this is a great discipleship tool with your children is teaching them to develop the habit of thanksgiving. It's a habit that needs to be cultivated. Second, I want you to see that thanksgiving is not an option for a Christ follower. Thanksgiving is a command that we need to obey. A command that we need to obey. There is a, maybe not a widespread, but there is a a fairly dominant teaching that is floating around the church that says there are no commandments in the New Testament. Well, I want to show you two of many, 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 many commands. The first is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. 
And Paul the Apostle says this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Here's the command. And be thankful. Be thankful. In the Greek, it's written in the present tense, which means thanksgiving is a habit to be pursued every day for the rest of our lives. And I think the reality is most of us are not very good at it, including myself. We're not very good at it. And so here's a command written in the present tense. It's also written in the imperative mood. That is to say, once again, it is a command. Also in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Let's do a raise of hands on this one. How many of you have asked yourself, you have to be honest because there will be a test later. How many of you have asked, God, what's your will for me? Show me your will. Have you ever thought to yourself, that's kind of a crazy question. God, what is your will for me? Because right here in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we learn what God's will is. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we also learn the will of God is that we are to be holy people. We are to flee from sexual immorality. We are to be God's holy chosen people. And so the next time you ask yourself, what is God's will for my life? Remember, here's two things. Be thankful and be holy. Be thankful and be holy. Number three, I want you to see that thanksgiving now reveals a heart that trusts God and treasures him above all things. Thanksgiving reveals a heart that trusts God and treasures him above all things. John Piper puts it this way. Gratitude or a thankful heart is a response to being cared for by a great God. He continues. He says it signifies that God is the source of our safety and meaning in life. It is the mark of a secure, healthy, mature person. That's quite a benchmark. What Piper is saying is this, is if you are a person who is an ingrate, if you are a person who has a, a complaining spirit, guess what? I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care if you went to seminary. I don't care how much experience you have in the marketplace of ideas. Piper puts it this way. If you're an ingrate, if you're a complainer, you're an exceedingly immature person. Gratitude is the mark of a secure, healthy, mature person. Finally, I want you to see that a thankful heart glorifies God. You say, how can I, as a, as a man or woman, as a young man or a young woman, glorify God? It's such a simple principle. Just be thankful. Just be thankful. I have known people in my life who exemplify this principle by being thankful. That's the kind of person I want to be around. That's the kind of person I want to be around. Conversely, if you're hanging around a person who's an ingrate, a complainer, a, a negative person, guess what's going to happen? You'll slowly start to become like that person. And so we want to have thankful hearts that glorify God.
Let me ask, when you stand in the shadow of death, and we certainly all have, and if you haven't, you will one day. When you stand in the shadow of death, what is the condition of your heart? Is your faith on the horizontal plane like Martha, where she questions with Jesus, where she probes Jesus, where she really, in so many words, debates with Jesus, questioning his wisdom, or Do you have a a Godward perspective? Do you have a a vertical perspective? A perspective that is able to say, God, I don't know what you're doing. This is crazy. But I thank you. As Casting Crowns in the great song says, I praise you in the storm. This is crazy. Everything's falling apart at the seams, but I praise you in the storm. I want you to remember That Jesus does not approach the tomb of his friend as a mere stoic. You remember, he's fully God and fully man. Verse 38 says, he was deeply moved. I love the next word, again. He was deeply moved again. Yet, despite the pain, despite the horror of death that stands before him, Jesus models an attitude of trust and thanksgiving. And in so doing, his thankful heart glorifies God. I want you to see the second way that Jesus is fixated on the glory of God. And it occurs in verse 42. He says this in his prayer to the Father. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. The second way that we find Jesus fixated on the glory of God is that his resolute will glorifies God. I like to call this the the single-minded determination of Jesus. Back in John chapter 11, verse 6, we see the single-minded determination of Jesus where he was resolute as he waited for two days in the northern region in Bethany. Second, we see that Jesus is resolute in his love for people. We learned about that last week where the Jews standing around said, Man, Jesus loves people. But the main thing I want you to see this morning is that that stands out in the story is this, that Jesus was resolute in his mission for people to believe in him. Jesus was resolute in his mission for people to believe. I want to have you look with me at several verses, beginning in John chapter 11, verse 15. And we'll see a pattern here that is beginning to develop. In John 11, verse 15, Jesus had told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then he says in verse 15, for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Why? So that you'd believe. You see, Jesus is resolute in this mission that people would believe in him. Then go to verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see the next line? Do you believe this? Why would he say that to Martha? Because he was resolute in his mission for people to believe. And then go to our 
passage for this morning, verse 42. He says to the Father, I knew you always hear me. But I said this on account, on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. That is to say, when he uttered this prayer to the Father, it was an audible prayer. It was an audible prayer, and he prayed this so that the Jewish people standing around would believe in him. And God is greatly glorified in the single-minded determination of Jesus. For when people believe the gospel, God is glorified. When Emily decided to believe the gospel, when Olivia decided to believe the gospel, God was and is glorified. We read in the gospels that the angels... In so many words, throw a party. They are excited when a person believes the gospel. And so Jesus was resolute in his will and the shadow of death. And it's a great encouragement to us, I believe, of practical encouragement. His example reminds us to be a a people of single-minded determination. In America... We tend to not be a a people of single-minded determination, right? We are wishy-washy. I heard a person say once that a lot of men in the church should go down to Walmart and get one of those those steel posts and stick it down their back, right? Because many men in the church, they're like the jellyfish. They don't know what they believe. But here at Christ Fellowship, what kind of men do we want to be? We want to be men who are single-minded in our devotion to Jesus. We are single-minded in our desire to love our wives as Christ loves the church. We are single-minded in our passion to raise up our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We are single-minded in our pursuit of Jesus and His Lordship. Let me encourage you. Men, October 23 and 24, we are going to grab the bull by the horns at this men's retreat. I want to encourage every man to come. Whether you are willing to participate over the course of the next year in Ironman or not, will you come as we learn what it means to be single-minded Single-minded like the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask, where do you need to be single-minded this week in your relationship with God? In your relationship with people? Perhaps your marriage is in trouble. And today is the day. Today is the day where you say, God, I draw the line in the sand. I will maintain my marriage vows. I'm going to stick this out. Maybe you are discouraged in ministry. And you need single-minded determination to stay on the course that God has set for you. I won't give personal biographical information on my discouragement over the last two years. Just use your imagination. And so maybe your pastor is saying to you, I need single-minded determination to stay the course. It doesn't matter what the press clippings say. It matters that we are faithful in our pursuit of the glory of God. Perhaps you feel like just dropping out of the race altogether. You feel like throwing in the towel and you need single-minded determination to love the Lord Jesus Christ and find your satisfaction in Him alone. 
Well, Jesus' heavenly fixation, of course, is set squarely on the glory of God. His thankful heart glorifies God. His resolute will glorifies God. But I want you to see a third aspect of how Jesus remains fixated on the glory of God. And it occurs in verse 43 and verse 44. When he had said these things, when he concluded his prayer, he cried out with a loud voice. Isn't that how we should read the text? He didn't say, Lazarus, come out. It says with a loud voice, he said, Lazarus, come out. The man, imagine being Martha. She just a moment before said, he stinketh. Oh, roll away, roll roll the stone away. Whatever. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? This stinky corpse awakens. I mean, really, use your imagination. He didn't jump up and say, hey, let's, let's go down to Applebee's and get some appetizers, right? This is a smelly corpse. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with, right? Linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. He's probably like, get these off me, right? And Jesus said to them, unbind him, yeah, and, and let him go. So before we marvel here at the sovereign power of Jesus, I want to take a look at Lazarus in the tomb before Jesus utters those words, Lazarus, come out. So what I want to refer to as the state of Lazarus. There's a few observations I want to make, and these are critical observations. And observations that I hope this doesn't insult your intelligence. Observation number one, Lazarus is dead. Princess Bride fans, not mostly dead, right? He is dead, deader than a doornail. He's been dead now, as Martha indicates, for four days. And the corpse would likely have begun the process of decomposition. Observation number two. And please, I I hope this doesn't insult anyone's intelligence. Since he's dead, he is utterly, completely incapacitated. If someone were to knock on the tomb and say, Lazarus, let's go to the movies. If someone were to knock on the tomb and say, Lazarus, come over for tea. If someone tried to get at him, his response is, Lazarus is utterly incapacitated. Number three, Lazarus then is a portrait of every person outside of Christ. I hope that you have had the frustrating experience of sharing the gospel with someone. And you you share the gospel as clearly and graciously and boldly as you know how. You say to your friend, you're at Starbucks, which is one of the greatest places to share the gospel, right? You say, friend, all you need to know is that God is a holy God. 
And he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, to live the life that you and I could never live and to die the death on the cross that you deserve and I deserve and every person deserves. We, we deserve to face the, the wrath of Almighty God for all eternity. And Jesus died on a cross and on the third day he, raised, he was raised again and says, whoever believes on me would have eternal life. And he was just like, that, that is the most simple, profound message you could ever give to anyone. And your friend looks at you like you are a Martian from the planet Venus. Why? The answer is, it has nothing to do with his or her intelligence. It has nothing to do with his or her background. It has nothing to do with anything except this. He or she is dead. They're dead. You say, wake up. They're dead. And so Lazarus is a portrait of every person outside Christ. He is dead. Thus, every person who is outside Christ, the Bible says, is spiritually dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says it this way, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Back in John chapter 5, if you would turn there with me, this is from several months ago. John chapter 5, verse 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear and the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. Steve Lawson says it like this. In this state, in this condition, unregenerate people are completely unresponsive to the things of God. Just as a corpse cannot see, hear, or make choices, one who is spiritually dead cannot, cannot, cannot properly respond to the things of God. The great writer, J.C. Ryle, says it like this. I admit that man has many grand and noble faculties left about him, and that in arts and sciences and literature he shows immense capacity, but the fact still remains that in spiritual things he is utterly dead, and he has no natural knowledge or love or fear of God. So Lazarus is a portrait, is an object lesson, if you will, of every person who is outside of Christ. In addition, every person who is outside of Christ has what theologians refer to as spiritual inability. Well, now we've built the case, right? Dead, incapacitated. Well, of course they're, they have no ability. They're, help me, they're dead. They're incapacitated. They're dead. And so such a person, the Bible says, is enslaved to sin and unable to come to God apart from the empowerment of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him sent me draws him. Lorraine Bettner, tremendous theologian, says man is a free agent. But he cannot originate the love of God in his heart. He is free in the sense that it is not controlled by a force outside himself. As a bird with a broken wing is free to fly, 
but not able. So the natural man is free to come to God, but not able. And so when we consider now the state of Lazarus, now the sovereign power of Jesus Christ becomes very, very interesting and magnificent. Why? Because Lazarus is totally dead. He is incapacitated. He is not making free choices. He is dead. And so notice with me the sovereign power of Jesus. Six emerging lessons about his sovereign power. Number one, we see with me that Jesus has the authority over sin and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at these remaining aspects of Jesus' sovereign power, I want you in your mind's eye to imagine Jesus at the tomb. And he's uttering those words, Lazarus, come forth. Number two, his call is powerful and effectual. His call is powerful and effectual. When Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, what happens? The dead man comes to life. The rotting corpse raises up. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Number three, I want you to see that the call of Jesus is not dependent on the human will. Why? He's dead. The call of Jesus is not dependent on the human will. This is a good thing because we have, as we have learned, the human will has no power or ability in and of itself to incline itself to God. Apart from the sovereign call of God, the human will will continue to freely rebel and resist Jesus in his gospel. Number four, I want you to see that his call now is irresistible. Jesus says in John chapter 10, this is from several weeks ago. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. I've been in conversations with people that essentially the logic is this. What if Lazarus didn't want to come forth? It's not even a good question. Why? Because Jesus' call is powerful. It's effective. It's irresistible. That leads to number five, that God alone has the prerogative. You say, what does that mean? God has the prerogative. He determines who he raises to life. You say, where do you get that? Romans chapter 9 says, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. 
Finally, I want you to see the sovereign power of Jesus, which raises the dead, glorifies God. As Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and that corpse rose up and said, let me out of here. And the the Jews saw the miracle, and Martha and Mary saw the miracle. Don't miss the fact that the most important thing is that God was greatly glorified by the sovereign power that Jesus exerted. And the resurrection of Lazarus is, is just a glimpse. It's just the tip of the iceberg of the power that Jesus will display when he raises all the dead on the last day. Paul the Apostle unpacks the hope of the resurrection, and he applies it to every person who believes in Jesus. Bill read these verses earlier. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised by the, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. My friends, here is what the Bible is calling each of us to do today. The Bible beckons spiritually dead people to believe. The Bible says this in Isaiah 55, come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat, come and buy wine and milk without money, without price. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus says this, Come, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, truly, truly, the hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And Acts 16 says it this way, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. My friends, when people believe, God is greatly glorified. God is greatly glorified when you believe on Jesus for salvation. God is greatly glorified that when you stand in the shadow of death, you continue to believe in Jesus. He is greatly glorified when you trust in him, when you cling to him, when you rely on him. And instead of a frail faith... You have a victorious faith, a vibrant faith that banks everything on the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a faith greatly glorifies God. Now, for some of you, the crucial question today is this. Have you heard the voice of the Son? The good news, as we've already shared, is that God sent Jesus to be the final payment for sin for everyone who would ever believe That he was punished for our sins. That he bore the wrath of God. That he was buried. And three days later, he was raised from the grave. He was raised from the dead. And 
Romans 10, 13 says, Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For many of you, for those of you who have already heard the voice of God's Son, some of you it happened many, many months ago. For a lot of you it happened many, many, many moons ago. A long time ago. I was just thinking the other day that I, I've been walking with Christ now over 40 years. And I'm only 27 years old. It's pretty good. But the question is this. Is your gaze fixed on the horizontal or is your gaze fixed vertically? That is to say, are you man-centered or are you God-centered? Are you centered on the things of this world or are you centered on the things of God's kingdom? The Bible says in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Pornea. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil thoughts, desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. We close with the truth point. That is that Jesus' heavenly fixation is set squarely on the glory of God. Oh, that we would follow the example of Jesus, that we would be vertical in our orientation and refuse to gaze exclusively on the horizontal. Yes, there are things that we need to do on the horizontal level, but how do we do them? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it all to the glory of God. That should be our heavenly fixation. We pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for uh, these stories that uh, bring into vivid relief uh, who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And when we learn about who Jesus is, we learn about who you are. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for, uh, for the mission that you carried out for the glory of God. Thank you, Jesus, for, for having such a heavenly fixation on the glory of God. And I pray that your example would uh, motivate us today that your example would inspire us, that your example would bring us to the point of repentance. God, I think of young people today as they think about their futures, as they think about uh, what will begin to unfold in the months and years ahead. I pray that their fixation would be a heavenly fixation. I pray that they would find all their, their hopes and dreams centered around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's my prayer for each one of us here that we would be heavenly-minded, that we would be kingdom-minded, that we would be gospel-minded, that all these pursuits would be pursuits that would be vertical in nature. Help us, God, to, um, to stand with your Son, the Lord Jesus, to learn from his example, to have a heavenly fixation like his. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.
As we close, I'm going to ask you to to do something together that I I know some of you will be physically unable to do. If that is uh, uh, you, then please feel free to to not participate. But I'm going to ask us to kneel as a church family. Uh, when we gather together as the Council of Elders, we we kneel out of a sign of submission uh, to the, the authority of God, respect out of humility to his lordship and sovereignty. And I want to ask you and ask us all, those of us that can do it physically, that we would kneel uh, before the God of the universe. And I want to read a scripture and, and pray to close. Let's let's kneel before our God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that may fill you, be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. And amen. Father, thank you for a vertical prayer from Paul the Apostle. Thank you for the reminder to be fixated on the glory of God. And I pray for these dear people now that they would fixate their attention on the glory of God as well. Today, as we close, I want to ask you to do something very practical, to ask God a question. God, where have I been fixated horizontally that I need to repent? What are the things that I have been pursuing horizontally that need adjustment, that need to be uh, ripped out of the fabric of my life so that I can pursue you in all your glory? Would you do that now? And now in the quietness of this moment, would you ask God, God, what, what is it that you would have me to do today, the rest of this week, the rest of this month, indeed the rest of my life, to be a person who is committed to gazing at the vertical, to be a person who is heavenly minded, to be a person who is consumed with the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus, and the glory of God. And so, Father, thank you for the the mighty power that you've displayed in your son. I pray that power that resides within each Christ follower here this morning will be strengthened and encouraged and emboldened and motivated to be fixated on the things that are eternal, not the things that are temporal. May you strengthen them according to the riches of your grace. Strengthen them to do a good work. Strengthen them to reach out to the lost in this community, to love people for the glory of God, to love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give us the power to do these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.